0: The miracles of Jesus serve as signs of redemption, showing in symbolic form what Jesus is doing spiritually through his life, death, and resurrection. You're listening to Wondrous Deeds, a summer sermon series by the elders of Cornerstone Bible Church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all this morning. Um, If you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be reading from there this morning as we continue our summer series on uh, the miracles of Christ as recorded in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, so while you're doing that, uh, let me just say how grateful I am to be with you all today. Uh, For one, I was actually supposed to be on travel this week uh, out in California for work. Uh, but for two, I was down hard with COVID for the last couple of weeks, which means they had to find someone else to do my traveling for me. And three, I was down hard with COVID for the last couple of weeks. And, uh, so I'm just so grateful for God's hand, both in my sickness and in my healing. And, uh, so praise God for his goodness. And just in case you're curious, I've been in the clear for over a week now or about a week now. And, uh, so you shouldn't get any cooties from me. So with that, let's read uh, Matthew chapter 9, and what I'm going to do is, uh, the the heart of the passage for today is actually verses 18 through 26, but I want to back up a little bit just to put it into context, it really has very little to do uh, in any kind of meaningful way uh, with the actual message, but again, I just want to put it into context so we understand what's happening here. So I'm going to actually start reading from verse 14. Here's God's word. Then the disciples of John came to him, meaning Jesus, saying, Why do we we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but is sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Let's pray quickly. Father. So grateful for your word, Uh, I ask God that you would give us your spirit today to hear, for it to land on soft hearts, and for us to um, be obedient to it, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, uh, as you can see from today's passage, you get a twofer. Uh, We'll actually be covering two miracles uh, for the price of one. So, uh, here is my thesis for today. Against all odds, Jesus gives us new life and health both physically and spiritually, by faith through His life, death, and resurrection. He heals us from our sin, and He raises sinners to life from spiritual death. Let me repeat that. Against all odds, Jesus gives us new life and health, both physically and spiritually, by faith through His life, death, and resurrection. He heals us from our sin, and He raises sinners to life from spiritual death. So I want to start with kind of an overview of the two miracles here, and then we'll take them one by one and bring them uh, to life. So uh, first, I have a little quiz for you. And as I'm looking around, not many of you will qualify to take this quiz. So in all fairness, this is really only for Cornerstone members who've been here for several years. So the pressure's on you guys. So do you remember when Stacy Potts preached through the Gospel of Mark? And who remembers the word intercalation? Yay, all right, cat, couple people, all right. So, uh, do you remember what it means? Uh, Who remembers that and, and, and how it was used? Well, briefly, it's a literary device in which the author tells a story within a story. It starts with story A, and then it moves into story B, and then it goes back to story A. And the two stories are usually uh, somewhat uh, related to each other, okay, though not always in an obvious way. And Stacy taught that that's one of Mark's devices that he typically uses to provide an effective narrative. And he employs it several times in his gospel. It's also, interestingly known, as a Markin's sandwich. So next time you go to Subway, don't order a Markin's sandwich, they'll have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, so, Notice that Matthew, though, does this in today's account uh, of the two healings because, well, that's how it actually happened. Story A, the synagogue ruler comes to Jesus to ask him to raise his deceased daughter. On his way to his house, story B unfolds with the account of the woman with the issue of blood. And then we return to story A and the synagogue ruler's daughter. So that just provides a framework for us to understand. And we'll see that these two miracles are connected. Well, Matthew is not the only gospel writer, incidentally, to tell these stories. Mark and Luke also record their versions. And while they differ slightly in some details, the overall stories are remarkably similar. However, Matthew's account is surprisingly the shortest. This is surprising because Mark is the gospel writer preferred by 9 out of 10 Bible students with short attention spans. His accounts tend to be very brief and to the point, and then he's on to the next thing. However, what makes Matthew, what takes Matthew, and an economical nine verses to tell, Mark tells in 23 verses, and Luke's account is similar to Mark's. The other two provide color commentary to Matthew's quick play-by-play, and I'll refer to all three accounts to help us understand what God is teaching us today in his word. And so with that, let's get into our stories, and we'll start with story B, the woman with the bleeding, which again... Mark, or Matthew tells in exactly three verses, verses 20 through 22. So there are layers of tragedy to this woman's story. Matthew tells us that she had been bleeding for 12 years. It seems likely that this was a reproductive issue that was related to her menstrual cycle. But in this case, there doesn't seem to be a cycle at all. The bleeding just never ended, at least not for any real length of time. This likely prevented her from having a husband or children, which must have been an incredible hardship. No husband is ever mentioned, and she is only ever described in the singular. Mark and Luke tell us that she spent everything she had and it was no better, but actually grew worse. Physically, you could imagine this took an incredible toll on her. She would be dehydrated, exhausted, fatigued, and probably quite depressed. Well... The Levitical laws had much to say about the uncleanness of bleeding. Listen to Leviticus 15, verses 25 through 27, and think about this woman as I read. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of of her discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. Wow. I can't go into much detail about all this business of uncleanness, which can be especially harsh-sounding to our modern Western ears, but suffice to say that this is largely intended to picture for us the overall effects of sin. The law was intended to show us the depths of sin and our inability to live righteously on our own, and therefore, the need we have for Christ. This woman is getting a very personal, very first-hand lesson in this and of her need for Christ, as we'll see. So because her bleeding never stopped, she was always unclean. She was shut out from the courts of the temple. She could not go and worship with her people. And because anyone who touched her things or her clothes, or especially her, would themselves be unclean. And so it doesn't take much to imagine that everyone avoided her. She likely had very few, if any, friends. She was lonely. We were designed as social creatures, so isolation from people, especially when you live in the midst of them, is terrible for your mental health. And further, the people around her probably wondered if she was cursed by God. She probably wondered that herself. As noted earlier, she had spent everything she had on doctors over the years, and she never got better. So not only was she worse off physically, but she was ruined financially. Where is God in the midst of that? But then she heard about this Jesus, who was often in her town of Capernaum. He was not a doctor, at least not in the normal sense of of the word. He He was a teacher, a rabbi, and his words seemed to carry unusual authority. Crowds were following him, and there were stories circulating about of Jesus performing miraculous things. Some reported that he had cleansed a leper, again, a condition with extremely difficult laws related to uncleanness, resulting in lonely, Isolated people left to fend for themselves. He also had reportedly healed several others, and he had cast out demons. But one of the most startling things was that when he had recently healed uh, another man, he did something highly unusual, and this really had everybody talking. He forgave the man of his sins. This sounds blasphemous, because only Yahweh can forgive sins. But perhaps if he can physically heal someone, he really can spiritually heal them too? Maybe this was the Messiah? Well, this woman had no other options. Twelve years of bleeding, weakness, loneliness, and depression were enough. She had to try something. She had heard that Jesus was nearby, and she ran into the crowds. Somewhere in the center of this crowd, she saw a fairly ordinary-looking rabbi walking somewhere with purpose. In fact, he seemed to be following another important-looking rabbi who looked very distressed. But this Jesus had a different look about himself. He looked, again, somehow authoritative. I would imagine her heart began to pound as she picked her way toward him. She was likely afraid that someone would point at her and yell, unclean, unclean. I imagine she thought, I can't just approach him and tell him I've been bleeding because he won't touch me. No, I'll have to do this without him even knowing. Maybe sneak up and touch the fringe of his garment. I mean, if this man really does hear from God, then perhaps the picture of Malachi 4 is true. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And I could, in faith, touch the wings of his garment, the tassels, and be healed. Ah, But for me to touch the tassels of a devout Jew's talith will probably make him angry. I'll be making him unclean, forcing him to go through Moses' cleansing rituals. This is risky. But so is losing this chance. This rabbi may never come this way again. I can even hear some of his words, something about fasting and a bridegroom being taken away. I I don't understand what he's saying, but he really does teach differently than the other rabbis. Again, with authority. I'm going to go for it. It's impossible to know what she felt when she did this. But Jesus turned and asked who touched him, that he had felt some power going out from him. And with that, Jesus smiled at her and said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. Jesus not only healed her physical body, he restored her dignity, declared her worth, and established relationship with her. He called her daughter and told her to take heart, to take comfort. Isaiah wrote comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Well, Jesus cleansed her, restoring her to her people and to her God. She was no longer an outcast among her own people. She was a daughter. And in her excitement, she probably forgot all about that other important rabbi and whatever he was asking about. She knew she was clean, really clean. Well, the rest of that passage in Leviticus, chapter 15, verses 28 through 30, describes the process following her cleansing. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge." So in eight days, this woman was undoubtedly going to throw a party. She would take her two pigeons to the priest and have him offer them as atonement for her sins. And she will celebrate and thank God for his said, his everlasting loving kindness. But Jesus had already made her clean. It was done, and her life would never be the same. So what is the significance of her healing in particular? Well, remember, ceremonial uncleanness, according to the law, symbolizes the deeper spiritual uncleanness of sin. Jesus' power to physically heal the woman without even physically touching her demonstrates his spiritual power over spiritual uncleanness. This is a preview of his substitutionary work of bearing sin on the cross. He is greater than our sin and has the atoning power to make clean what was unclean. Well, how do we apply this to our lives? Just as the woman exercised faith in Jesus, we must exercise faith, especially in his life, death, resurrection, and in his return. Just as Jesus turned the woman from unclean to clean, he removes the guilt of our sin from us, washing us white as snow. He, she was physically and spiritually healed. The cure for sin was the internal work of grace in her, symbolized by the physical stopping of her bleeding. Just as Jesus gave new life to the woman, he gives new spiritual life to us. And he told her to go in peace to traditional Jewish shalom, implying complete reconciliation to God. Much more important than her bleeding, she was reconciled to God. And now, let's get into story A, the synagogue ruler's daughter. Well, this ruler of the synagogue, whom Mark and Luke identify as Jairus, was having a crisis of his own. As the synagogue ruler, he was responsible for the synagogue building, including its maintenance, repair, and cleaning. He was responsible for arranging the Shabbat services and its other affairs, including reading the Torah and the other scriptures, and directing the people who led the service. Now, I know what you're all thinking. He was basically Jordan, and you're not wrong. Unlike the woman with the bleeding, though, Jairus was a man of great importance. The synagogue was the center of Jewish life. He would have sat in one of the seats reserved for important people. As we know from the Gospels, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two main sects of Judaism, were at best skeptical of Jesus. But at this point, Jairus apparently recognized that Jesus could be the Messiah. Sadly, Jairus' 12-year-old daughter, who'd been alive for as long as the woman who'd been suffering her persistent blood loss, had evidently been overcome by some illness, fighting for her life. Just imagine the helplessness you would feel as a parent, unable to help your child to get well. Did we not take this seriously early enough on? Did we try the wrong remedies? Have we done everything we could? Is there anything else we should have tried? What else can we do? The girl is spoken of as a little child, but she was on the doorstep of womanhood, of marriageable age. She had her whole life ahead of her, but her breathing was getting shallower and shallower, and she was becoming less responsive to communication. And at last, she exhaled for the final time. A mixture of grief and denial and anger must have swept across her parents and After an expression of understandably high emotion, Jairus remembered that this rabbi from Nazareth who had performed many miracles was in Capernaum. Perhaps he remembered Isaiah's words, chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because Yahweh has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint heart. And suddenly, Jairus up and left. He could see a large crowd gathered, listening to the rabbi's teaching. Many in the crowd recognized Jairus and out of custom bowed and gave way to this important man, noting that he seemed to be somewhat distraught. With the crowd parting like the Red Sea before Jairus, he boldly, yet with obvious humility, walked up and fell at Jesus' feet, even as he was just finishing his point. Something about new patches and wineskins. Rabbi, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. The disciples and others, I'm sure, looked at Jesus, wondering how he would bring this understandably shattered man back to reality. But shockingly, Jesus stood up and motioned for Jairus to lead the way. They all poured out of the crowded square and began to follow Jairus through the throng of admirers and curiosity seekers. Suddenly, though, Jairus' urgent urgent mission was interrupted when Jesus just stopped and looked around at those who were closest to him. And he asked to no one in particular, it seemed, who had touched him. Impatiently, Jairus was wondering what everybody else was wondering— With this crowd, who didn't touch you? And yet Jesus insisted that someone had touched him purposefully, that some kind of power had gone out from him. Before he knew it, Jairus saw a woman kneel before Jesus, just as he had just done, and heard her confession about touching the hem of his garment in the hopes of being healed of her unending bleeding. Jairus did not recognize her because her condition kept her out of synagogue, but Jesus' words to her were incredible. He told her to take heart, to be comforted because her faith had made her well and she was visibly changed. He really seems to have healed her right before my eyes and he didn't even have to touch her. Amazing. Jairus and the rest of the people looked on in wonder, visibly stunned by this obvious miracle. Hope again arose in him and Jesus gestured to Jairus to continue the journey to his house. He had not forgotten his little girl. Now, it's unknown if Jairus knew about Jesus raising the widow in Nain, which is recorded in Luke chapter 7, or if Lazarus had even yet been raised. But it's clear that somehow Jairus trusted Christ to have power over death. He would have known of Elijah and Elisha's stories in the scriptures, so maybe that was enough to really trust Jesus' authority over all things. And yet, life once lost cannot be restored. It is part of the curse. Once dead, the case has been determined. As is sometimes said, we shall go to them, but they shall not return to us. Well, as they proceeded down the street, it became obvious which house they were going to. There was already a large commotion in the professional mourners that often accompany these circumstances, already wailing and flinging dust in the air and singing loud lamentations. Funeral preparations in the ancient Middle East begin in earnest, So they were about the business of putting together the spices and the purification oils and the cleansing water. Jesus observed all this, a sight he'd seen countless times in his life, and told them, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. At this absurd comment, they all laughed. They have seen death. They understand death. And this girl is dead. Now, of course, Jesus knew this too, but he was referring to the fact that under him, death would be more like sleep. He will raise her up, and the rest of us, too. I'm imagining the mourners were hesitant to leave, first because they couldn't believe any of this, and second because this was a source of much-needed income. But the look on their synagogue ruler's face told them that he wanted them to leave his house, too. He trusted this rabbi no doubt they knew they'd be back so they probably didn't go far thinking they would soon acknowledge the obvious and so Jairus, Jesus and a few of his disciples went inside they entered the room where the girl lay lifeless but with sweat still on her face the smell of medicines, of oil lamps and sickness and death still thick in the air she looked like she was still wanting to gasp for air but her chest was still Her final breaths were obviously labor, judging from her contorted face. Her mother had been clutching her, half laying across her body, and now was collapsed in a chair next to her, somber and numb, not quite knowing how to process her beloved daughter's death. She looked up at this new intrusion on her grief, and seeing her husband return with these men, and in particular this man, something stirred in her too. Or was this a new member of the synagogue that she hadn't met yet and Jairus brought him in to administer blessings? She glanced at Jairus with an inquisitive look and Jairus just nodded as if to say, have hope, you won't believe what I just saw on my way here. At this, Jesus smiled at her and then did the unthinkable. He ignored Jewish custom and reached out and touched the little girl's hand. Levitical laws are also very clear about the uncleanness of touching a dead body. But he didn't just touch it. He clasped it firmly into his own rough carpenter's hand. He gently squeezed and said to her quietly but authoritatively, Talitha kumi, which is Aramaic for little girl, I say to you, arise. Instantly, she took a deep breath as if she'd been holding it for some time. She blinked a few times and then slowly opened up her eyes and looked around the room and saw her mother and father and the others standing around her, and her mother shrieked and her father gasped, and there was no shortage of amazement expressed by the disciples too. As the parents looked very believingly at this unbelievable sight, they laughed and cried and grabbed Jesus and the disciples and danced and shouted and raised a ruckus. She got off the bed and joined them in the dance. And before long, Jesus told them to give her something to eat. She had had a hard day. Well, giving her something to eat probably did a couple of things. It put them all back into normal, everyday life. And it demonstrated that she was not a ghost. She was as real and as human and as alive as ever. And they probably had quite the feast that night. So what is the significance of the little girl's raising? The little girl was certainly dead. Again, people in the ancient world understood death as it was always close at hand. In our culture, we leave all that messiness to the professionals at the funeral homes, but they dealt directly with death every day. They had to touch dead bodies, clean them, rub them with oil and spices, wrap them, and carry them to their tombs themselves. So there was no mistaking that she was dead. In any event, she was not dead to Christ, Bible commentator Matthew Henry says of this, Christ knew within himself what he would do and could do and had determined to make her death but as a sleep. So death is a sleep. It is even said throughout First and Second Kings of both the good kings and the evil kings that they slept with their fathers. But the death of the righteous is especially to be looked upon as sleep. Isaiah 57.2 5, says the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. So what is the application for us for this story? Well, the story of Jairus' daughter calls us to place our faith in Jesus Christ who can raise the dead. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you may even now be feeling a reviving inside you. If so, it is probably the Holy Spirit awakening you, bringing your dead soul to life. In faith, respond to it and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and be saved. Please talk to someone from this church about that today. In the context of faith, Jesus can raise a sinner dead in their trespasses and rebellion against him to new life in him. This should encourage all of us believers to tell this good news to a dead soul, you know, to revive a dead soul with the truth of the word and to allow the Holy Spirit to breathe new life into a dead soul. Now, it is his work, but it is our great joy and privilege to come alongside and to be used as his instrument in this way. Let me conclude. Remember that Jesus is the Lord of souls. He commands them forth and commands them back when and as he pleases. Dead souls are not raised to spirit life unless Christ revives and awakens them. God illustrated this beautifully to Ezekiel in the vision of the valley of dry bones. Can these bones live, he asked Ezekiel in chapter 37? And the spirit came upon them and revived them, attaching muscles and sinews and flesh and breathed into them the ruach, or breath of God, forging a mighty army. He helps us up, or we lie still. And so let me repeat my thesis this morning. Against all odds, Jesus gives us new life and health, both physically and spiritually, by faith, through his life, death, and resurrection. He heals us from our sin, and he raises sinners to life from spiritual death. And how about one final application as an overall, as an overarching application for the entire story? Again, Matthew Henry, one of my favorite commentators, says, Believers sleep in Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 4.14. They not only rest from the toils and labors of the day, but rest in hope of a joyful waking again in the morning of the resurrection, when they shall wake refreshed, wake to a new life, wake to be richly dressed and crowned, and wake to sleep no more. Rejoice also that at the final resurrection, we too will be given something to eat. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, and what a feast that will be. Let's pray. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. First Thessalonians 4:13 through14. Almighty God, thank you that your word does not leave us uninformed about these things, that we know that through Christ's atoning death on the cross, His rising again and conquering death, and His resurrection and His soon-coming return, that we know. That we have great hope that the work is complete and finished and all of the healings and the raising from the dead and other things that we see in this physical world are pictures that point to those things. And we're so grateful for that, Lord. Would you cause us today by your spirit to be um, submissive to you and to rejoice in these things, to give you glory and honor for um, your goodness and kindness throughout all of these things. Lord, we do not deserve it. We deserve nothing but your wrath, and yet, and yet, you raise us to new spiritual life when we do not deserve it. So God, we're grateful this morning. Would you go with us the rest of this day? Bless our time together in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.